Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Zeke. And I want to invite you at home to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And uh, this is always the case, but particularly today, make sure your Bible is open, please. 1 Corinthians 3. Um, Last Sunday, we considered the line that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, which is probably the line that causes the most problems. And so even though Ryan explained it so clearly and so well last week, I want to reiterate. When we say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, we're not referring to the Roman Catholic Church. We're referring to the word Catholic in its, in its sense, that it's universal. We declare that we believe in the holy universal church that stretches across the nations and across the denominations and across the ages. We believe that we're a part of something bigger than just what we see here in our, in our Baptist movement. And the line that we're coming to today is really part two. It's meant to be understood in light of what we said last week. So let's read these two lines together before we come to them and study. Let's say together, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. Now the word communion is just another way of saying togetherness or unity. And the saints here is not referring to any particularly hyper-holy brothers and sisters. No, the saints are all of the people of God, all true believers Uh, Martin Luther would famously say that we are simultaneously, each of us, saints and sinners. We've been made holy through Christ. And so the communion of saints put together with the Holy Catholic Church, when we proclaim that, we are saying that we believe that we are a part of the family of God, all of us as brothers and sisters, united under the head that is Jesus Christ. That's what we're saying. But before we begin, I do want to ask just a, a really practical probing question. I want to ask, do you actually want to believe that? Do you want to believe that? And I want you to really think that through. Because when we proclaim these words, we're not talking about some hypothetical future reality where, you know, one day we'll be united with all the saints because one day they will all come to see that we were right and our theology was perfect. No, that's not what we're saying. We're saying that today, that this day, we believe that we are a part of this family of God, that they are our brothers and sisters, and we're united under Christ. That everyone has truly, who has truly repented of their sins and placed their trust in Christ, everyone who delights in the triune God, is our brother or our sister right now? Do you, when you say those words, do you, do you want to believe that that is true? It's important to think that through. That, that the Anglican brother who's, who's praying from the common book of prayer, right? that, that Pentecostal sister who, who's preaching in the pulpit down the road, uh, that Presbyterian brother who, who's sprinkling an infant down the road, you know those are our brothers and sisters in Christ, right? That's what we're saying here when we recite these lines. I think this is necessary for us. And I'm so thankful we can come back to it. One of the things that the Apostles' Creed does is it necessarily widens our circle of who we consider to be us. I think it's very helpful, particularly in this cultural moment we're living in today. We see through a glass dimly, and thus we do really disagree on a number of secondary and tertiary issues. That's true. But if we are in Christ, then we are the family of God today. It doesn't feel that way sometimes. In fact, I would argue some days it feels absolutely impossible. You look out over the church, even just the church here in Aurelia, and you think, what a mess. Which is why we're turning today to the book of 1 Corinthians. So look there with me now, 1 Corinthians 3. This church in Corinth, if you've 
heard a sermon from Corinthians or if you've ever read a commentary on Corinthians, you've, you've heard it said, this is perhaps the most dysfunctional church in the history of all churches. An absolute mess. And the Apostle Paul was speaking to this church that was a, a disaster. But rather than, you know, throwing up his hands and writing them off, rather than, you know, just saying, oh, you know, unity is never, never going to happen, rather than saying, you know, we'd be better off if this church just dissolved, the Apostle Paul leans in. He leans in and he, and he sets in order this church and he works to guard the communion of saints in the city of Corinth. And our text this morning in 1 Corinthians 3 gives us an idea as to why. Why it is that the Apostle Paul fought for this unity. Look with me now. Hear God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living and active and relevant word to us today. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 to 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple? That God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. And you are that temple. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You are that temple. Now, you can't see this readily in the English, though the context makes it clear. But in in the Greek, it's plain as day. Every time he uses you here in these verses, he's referring to the plural church. So he's not just talking to a person, saying you, individual, are the temple of God. He's saying you, church in Corinth. You, messy, dysfunctional, disastrous church in Corinth, are the temple of the living God, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You are holy. If anyone would oppose this church, God will oppose him. Do you not know who you are? And it's that conviction that compels the Apostle Paul to contend for the communion of the saints. He fights to protect it. Therefore, we ought to do the same. As we look out over a church that at times feels messy and clumsy and so broken, we need to lean in and to protect the communion of the saints. And so, again, leave your Bible open in 1 Corinthians what we're going to do is we're going to walk through this letter and see all the ways that the Apostle Paul fights to protect this unity. And we're going to ask and, ask and answer this question. How do we protect the communion of saints? First, if you want to protect the communion of saints, don't succumb to tribalism. Flip back to chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 11 to 13. Here Paul says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people, That there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? So here we see in the infancy of the New Testament church, already we see this, this root of tribalism. It started right on day one. I don't know if I'm encouraged by that or discouraged by that. But from day one, people were over-identifying with their human leaders. And they were, you know, pitting them against one another and pridefully boasting. From day one, that was the problem. And Paul says, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're not a Paul man or a Cephas man or an Apollos man. All of you. You're, you're Jesus men. Right? We're the Jesus people. I wasn't crucified for you. Jesus was. It was gross, this tribalism. Now, I want to ask a really practical question as we think about this, because it's easy for us to say, yes, tribalism is gross. But now let's think in terms of application. 
Let's think about denominations. Are we saying then that denominations are gross? Is it, is it the same thing? You know, here in, in Corinth, I follow Paul, I follow Cephas. Here in Aurelia, it's, you know, I'm Anglican, I'm Baptist, I'm Presbyterian. Are those the same? I think that's a fair question. And it's a bit of a nuanced answer, so let me just say this. Say the difference between the two is the difference in the heart. So denominations can be very helpful or they can be very hurtful. And the, the difference really lies in the heart. Denominations, when held with pride and arrogance, can turn into tribalism. So if, if you think about your denomination, here we are, we're Baptists, okay? So if you think about Baptists and you say, okay, we are the only arbiters of truth. We are the only ones in this city, nay, this world, who understand the Bible. And our confession, our statements of faith, are the only ones that were written by men who love and take seriously the word of God. If that's the way you think about your denomination, and that shapes the way that you look out at others, then that is tribalism. And the Apostle Paul would come and he would say to us, say to the church, listen, did you... What do you say that I follow the 1689 Confession, or I follow the Westminster Catechism, or I I follow the Common Book of Prayer? No, no, no. Were any of those things crucified for you? No. Jesus was. Right? So he would correct that, because that is a sense of tribalism. And yet denominationalism, actually, it can be very helpful if it's held with humility. Right? It's important for us to believe true things. It's important for us to deal honestly with the Bible. And so denominations are a helpful way for us to acknowledge that we see through a glass dimly. And by the way, you do, and so do I. So we come to the text, we want the word of God to transform us, we want to live according to what we see, and with humility, you know, we we pull out these truths. Can I tell you, I think that our confession of faith is the best one. That's why I'm a Baptist, right? That's why I'm here. I think our statement of faith is accurate and wonderful, and that's why we hold each other to it here in membership, because that's, that's what we see in the text, and we, we've agreed to walk together. But in humility, we need to hold those things and say, and yet, there are Presbyterians and Anglicans and Pentecostals and uh, brethren, brethren in Christ. There, there are people who see things differently in the text, who are pulling out slightly different secondary, tertiary, tertiary theological decisions And they're not doing that because they don't love Jesus. And they're not doing that because they don't take the Bible seriously. They just, they see through a glass dimly just like we do. And so with humility, we say, I believe this is true with all my heart. And yet, I believe you're my brother and my sister with all my heart. When we have that humility, that's the difference. And that's what keeps us from succumbing to tribalism. So yes, believe some things. Belong somewhere. But be humble. The 1689 wasn't crucified for us. Jesus was. The Baptists aren't the hope of the world. Jesus is. And when we remember that and believe that, it will keep us from this ditch of tribalism. And it will help us to protect the communion of saints. That's first. Second, if you want to protect the communion of saints, dig deep and grow up. Flip ahead with me to chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 to 4. Look there with me now. But I, brothers could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, you are not, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? 
For when one says, I follow Paul, or another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely humans? Now, you can see him connecting this point back to what we were talking about in chapter 1. So he's touching on the tribalism and the fighting, but what he's showing us here is that all of that is actually rooted in this root issue of immaturity. He says, you're baby Christians, you're infants, you're living off of milk, and your conduct is actually revealing your diet. His approach is interesting too, isn't it? Notice he doesn't rebuke them per se. He does something that's maybe worse. He just comes in with a blunt statement of fact. Right? It'd be one thing if he came in and said, hey, quit acting this way, you knuckleheads. Grow up, right? You, you should know better. But he doesn't do that. He comes in and he says, I know why you're behaving the way that you are. It's because you're babies. I'm not surprised by your actions. This is how babies act, and that's who you are. You're infants in Christ, living off of milk. Your conduct reveals your diet. Now, in the same way, I think it's fair to say that as we look out over the North American church today, the the last few years have really exposed what we knew all along, is that we are biblically illiterate as a people. We're not mature in our faith. We've been living off of milk. We've been living off of little snippets rather than digging deep and and, and eating the, the meaty things of the faith. And the conflicts that we've been facing have caused quarreling and fighting and strife. And it's, it's caused us to reveal with our conduct our diet. We have too many churches. Too many elder boards, if we're being honest. Too many pulpits that are not feeding deeply on the word of God. That are not putting the roots, the roots in deep. And, and consuming the word. And, and going deep in prayer. And it's revealing itself with our immaturity. We behave accordingly. We cry when we don't get our way and we throw toys at each other on social media when we're angry and we take our eyes off of Jesus and fixate on minute trivialities. Therefore, very simple, if you want to be a part of cultivating unity in the church, then dig deep and grow up. Read your Bible. Pray every day and you'll grow, grow, grow. Get a good systematic theology and And read through it slowly and thoughtfully. Add some biblical meat to your diet. Listen, if you feed yourself like a man or a woman of God, you'll be less likely to throw temper tantrums like a toddler. That's true. It was true in Corinth and it's true in Aurelia. Dig deep. Grow up. Third, if you want to protect the communion of saints, take sin seriously. Flip ahead with me to chapter 5. We're going to read from verses 1 to 2. Paul says, It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, most commentators agree and and speculate that this is likely not his biological mother. This is likely his father has remarried at some point. But regardless, this is gross. This is wrong. And Paul says even the outside world knows this is gross and wrong. He's sleeping with his father's wife and you know about it. And you're not doing anything about it. In fact, he says, "You're, you're boasting. He says, what does he say here? He says, you are arrogant. So it seems like maybe within the church, they thought that, you know, the kindness and the compassion and the, 
the forbearance they were showing towards this sin was, maybe they thought that this was unity, that they were contending for the communion of saints. And Paul says, no, no, you need to deal with this. A member of your church is living in outright sin. That's not unity. He goes on to say in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6.14, he tells the church, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? Charles Spurgeon notes, That union which is not based on the truth of God is rather a conspiracy than a communion. So listen, so we're talking about unity, and maybe some of you already have had some sensors go off in your head, and you're thinking, hey, but we can't just, we can't just welcome anyone in the circle. And I would say you're right. You're right in that we cannot have unity with darkness. Light and darkness can't go together. We can't make peace with sin to, to bring it into the camp. That's not unity, right? That's a sham. We have to take sin very seriously. But here, I wanna, we have a bit of time to think practically, so I want to think practically, because here's where we can sometimes get in trouble. Okay, and this is, this is tricky. I, Lord, help me to say this clearly in a way that's not offensive. Um, we can often struggle to draw a line between theological differences and sin. And that's one of the things that makes unity so hard. So I'll use one example that we've just mentioned today already. The difference between egalitarians and complementarians. So, so let's say, there is a, we believe from the text that a woman shouldn't preach. Right? We, we hold those convictions from our understanding of the Bible. But then a few churches down, there is a woman in the pulpit. Here's a question. Is that a theological difference or is that sin? Or here's another one that is readily available in our minds. We believe that we should submit to the government right now. That what they're doing is appropriate and that, that we're called to submit and to pray for them. And yet there's a church down the road that disagrees. And they're having big gatherings in their worship services. And it's, it's causing a bit of chaos. Is that a th- theological disagreement or is that sin? You can see how suddenly it becomes a little bit harder to understand how unity can be possible. What's the difference between sin and theological disagreement? That's very nuanced, very complicated, but here's just one rule that I think would be really helpful for us if we want to fight to preserve unity in the church. Let's do this. When, when we see that theological disagreement, let's listen carefully and charitably. Let's talk to our brothers and sisters because it's very possible that that sister is, she's holds her convictions from the scriptures. She approaches them differently than you do. But she loves Jesus and she's, she's making her convictions from the scripture. We'll throw, show some charity. Likewise with that church that's rebelling right now. It's very possible that they are doing what they're doing because they see it in the text. And their convictions tell them that this is how they are to honor the Lord right now. We can disagree while still saying that we love you as our brothers and our sisters in Christ. And drawing that line is, is critical when it comes to unity. We can't look at every single theological disagreement as a sin issue. Because it often isn't. We've got to become good listeners. Today, this morning, somebody said, God gave us two ears and one mouth for a reason. And I think that's exactly right. But all that being said, when it comes to sin, when it really is sin, when someone is mocking the word of God, scoffing at the word of God, Let's say you try to engage that discussion and, and they say, forget the Bible, we do what we want. Well, then there can be no unity where there is sin. All right, we're going to take sin seriously if we're going to have unity in the body of Christ. Fourth, if you want to protect the communion of saints, learn to turn the other cheek. Flip ahead to chapter 6, begin at verse 5 with me. He writes, I say this to your shame. 
Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? So here there's an issue going on in the church in Corinth, and it's between brothers. So these are, these are Christians. They've got a, a dispute, and it's not nothing, right? He says it's some kind of fraud, which means there's money at stake. Right? So it's a real issue with real consequences. And yet, Paul says, yet you never should have brought that out into the public sphere. So is, it, is it really the case that there was nobody within the family of God who could have settled that, who could have resolved that, and instead you brought it out into the city square? And you have the, the watching world adjudicate over us? Guys, come on. That's what he's saying. He's saying, come on. Why is this a big deal? It's a big deal because there are people in this city who are going to hell. It's a big deal because most of the Corinthians don't know and love and worship Jesus. They don't understand the beauty and the glory of the gospel. It's a big deal because you are witnesses to that glory. And instead of witnessing in a compelling way, you brought that into the public square. How far did we set back our witness by bringing that dispute out in front of the watching world? Paul says, come on. Why not rather be wronged, he says. Why not rather be defrauded? You made your case, but you turned your whole city off to the church. You won your argument, but your neighbor's going to go to hell. Was it worth it? That's what he's saying. Perhaps I'm way off base here. But this seems like a relevant word for us in our cultural moment. Am I way off base? Or are some of us going to be horrified and ashamed when we stand before the judgment seat of God and he plays back some of these episodes where we stomped our feet and we shook our fists and we fought for the watching world to see? I wonder if we won't see in the background our kids watching us with disgust, our neighbors watching us turning away from the church and from the gospel in disillusionment, never to return. What a terrible day that will be. How many kids are on the road to hell right now because of church splits? How many of our neighbors are on the road to hell right now because of public petty disputes on social media? Shame on us, truly. Shame on us. Shame on the North American church. Shame on me for any time I've been a part of it. That has to stop. It has to stop. Jesus said, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Some of us need to tape that verse onto our laptops. Fifth, if you want to protect the communion of the saints, put the rights of others before your own. Flip ahead to chapter 8. Look with me to verse 9. Paul says, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? So by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So the cultural context here is that Corinth was an idolatrous city, and and in idol worship, 
as in Jewish worship, there were sacrifices that were made. And, and just like in Jewish worship, animals are expensive. And so typically, if there was meat on the table, it, w- it meant that there was some kind of religious celebration that had taken place prior. So what do you do if you're a Christian living in that context? Can you ever go to that neighborhood barbecue? Are you allowed to participate? In, in eating that meat that's offered to you by your neighbor, are you participating in idol worship? That was a, an important question. Now, elsewhere, Paul unpacks this, and he says, essentially, no. You know, the idol was nothing, therefore the meat is nothing. And so, yeah, you do have the right to eat this meat. That's okay. But then he goes a step further, as if to say, but you're asking the wrong question. Rather than asking, do I have the right to do this? You should be asking, how will this action impact the people around me? And he points them to these brothers and sisters in the church, these new believers. He calls them weak. They have a weak conscience. So some of them have have just been saved out of this idolatrous culture. Maybe just a few months ago, one one of these people was actually sacrificing their animal in worship to this idol. And now they've, they've turned away from that sin, but they see you. You, mature sister in Christ, sitting there eating meat with your neighbors. And they think, maybe I can go back to my idolatry. Maybe I can go back to that, that worship. And Paul says, no. No. It, if them seeing me engaging in my rights is going to lead them into sin, I'll never eat meat again. I will forego all of my rights so that they would persevere in the faith, so that they would be protected He says, take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And then, obviously, this is an issue in the church because it comes back up again in chapter 10. And he says, he quotes them. You know, so you can imagine, they'd send him a letter. Like, hey, you know, Paul, we're having a big issue here, but all things are lawful, right? And so so he writes back with quotations. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. Listen, you might have rights, and maybe you feel like your rights are being infringed upon, and maybe it's, it's uncomfortable, and it's inconvenient for you, and you wish that everybody else would just get their act together. Maybe the charter's on your side. Maybe you've got all the facts. Maybe you're right. Possibly. But sometimes, even when the facts are on your side, and you have legal firepower at your disposal, you're called to defer for the sake of your weaker brothers and sisters. You're called to put their rights before your own rights. To be a Christian is not to be a person who who holds up their rights and says, look at my rights. That's not not who we are. There's probably some modern day application there, but I'll let you connect the dots. We've got to put the rights of others before our own rights if we're going to contend for the communion of saints. And now finally, if you want to protect the communion of saints, learn to love and celebrate unity in diversity. So flip ahead now to chapter 12, beginning in verse 21. Paul writes, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. 
If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Listen, contrary to how it feels at times, diversity is not the enemy of unity. Diversity is the fruit of unity. And the church should be the most diverse group in the city. Why? Because the gospel overcomes all of our differences and unites us together under the head of Christ. We are supposed to be the people who love and celebrate that diversity. Now this comes up in a number of different ways in the church in Corinth. So for example, in chapter 11, he rebukes them because the rich people and the poor people weren't spending time together. So you've got the rich people who are all hanging out with their rich friends, and you've got the poor people who are hanging out with their poor friends, and that happened socially, and then even when they came together for worship, there were just these divisions. And Paul says, listen, that cannot be the case in the church. And and I would just say, church, can we just take a moment of self-reflection? Consider your circle of friends, your sphere of friends. Consider the people in our congregation. Do you primarily surround yourself with people who are in that same economic bracket, that same stage of life, that same comfort level of living? Paul says it shouldn't be like that in the church. you gotta, you got to work to overcome that. There's supposed to be that beautiful diversity as you come together in spite of your different economic brackets. brackets. And then in chapter 7, he talks about singles. He says you've got singles in your church. And you need to know that they're not single because something's wrong with them. They're not single because they haven't yet fulfilled their potential. He says, it's great that they're single. I wish that lots of you were single, as I am. You could do so much more for the gospel. God calls some people to singleness. So don't make them feel like they're, they haven't yet arrived. They are a part of this family to be honored and celebrated. And practically speaking, I'd say, church, let's make sure that we're bringing single people into our spheres. If you're a family with a bunch of kids, don't just hang out with other families with a bunch of kids. Hang out with that couple that can't have kids. And hang out with those single people. And let's cultivate within our community of faith something that resembles the unity of the gospel. In chapters 12 and 14, he talks about the diversity of gifts. And he lists all of these different gifts. And some of them, some of them are tricky gifts, if we're being honest. They're, and it, as it manifested in the church, it got really clumsy and clunky at times. There was pride in the church, people, people looking at those with different gifts and saying, my gift is cooler than your gift. And, and it was just an absolute disaster. And Paul said, you've got to bring all those things together. Right? It's not your job to make everybody look like you. It's not your job to make everybody have the same gift as you. It's your job to see that they all come together. And when they're united under the head that is Christ, the church needs these things. So he says to the Galatians, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you're a Christian, you should love and celebrate the amazing diversity that exists in unity under the Lordship of Christ. And just one more practical note, just as we think this out. I I, had a little thought experiment this week and I thought I'd just share it with you. Throw it out to you. Imagine right now that you had a button. And if you press this button, every single church in the city of Aurelia would look and think and behave exactly like Redeemer. Imagine, you could just press a button and then every single one would be just like us. Would you press the button? It's interesting, isn't it? Granted, there are some unhealthy churches in this city. And here I am, I'm banging the unity drum, but I'll say it. There are some unhealthy churches in this city. There are some that I wouldn't even call a church. But I'll tell you, I still wouldn't press that button. And here's why. 
Because Paul says here, it is arrogant and it is foolish for the foot to say to the hand, I have no need of you. Which is exactly what pushing that button would do, isn't it? Say, let's make everybody in the town a foot. I'm not saying we're a foot. I don't know what we are. Let's make everybody in the town exactly like us. If we were to do that, we would lose all of the wonderful things that God is doing in this city. Things that we don't even know about. I mean, think about the Salvation Army, for example. Imagine if suddenly the Salvation Army disappeared. How are we going to step into those shoes? They have ministries and, and callings that they've spent years and years and generations developing and refining. And we think we could just jump in and, and, and take over? No, I'm so thankful for what God's doing in their midst. Or I, I was thinking of Hillside the other day. Hillside, I've never attended a Hillside service, but I've met a number of the young people that have come out of that church, and they are some of the godliest youth I've ever met. Which, I don't know if that's indicative of the whole church, but it suggests to me that they take family discipleship seriously. It suggests to me that there are some good things happening there. I'm thankful for them. I'm thankful for the diversity that we see here in this city. Those who are under Christ are a part of his body. We're diverse, yes, but in our diversity, there is gospel unity. What would it look like if in our social circles, we reflected and resembled this? What would it look like if in this city, we reflected and resembled this? I'll tell you what it would look like. It would look like the body of Christ. It would look like God's plan for his people. It would look like the communion of saints. Do we see this now? Fortunately, we do not. In fact, historians that are far more studied than I will ever be have suggested that this might be the most fractured moment in the history of the church. We have some work to do. But in the same way that Paul didn't simply throw up his hands and say, well, it's impossible, there's nothing we can do. In the same way that he didn't just walk away from the church, neither can we. We need to roll up our sleeves, we need to lean in. And maybe you're saying, well, why? Why bother? Wouldn't it just be easier if we could just isolate over here with people who think and behave and look exactly like we do and just enjoy one another until Christ returns or we go to glory? That would be easier, 100%. And that would certainly be less messy. But that's not what we're called to, right? Well, why? Why does this matter? Let me just give you two reasons as we conclude very quickly now. Two reasons why this matters. First, because Jesus prayed for it. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed, I do not ask for these only. That's his disciples. I don't just ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus prayed and he prayed for us. Not just his disciples, he prayed for all of those who would believe on account of the apostolic witness. So that is the church. He prayed for us and he asked that we would be so united that our unity would resemble that between the Son and the Father. That's a pretty high bar. That our unity would resemble resemble the perfect eternal unity that exists within the Godhead. So that, he says, so that the world would, would believe that you, Father, have sent me. Saying, the unity in the church, if it begins to resemble this unity, it's going to be a compelling witness to this testimony. Francis Schaeffer once said, we cannot expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son, that Jesus' claims are true, that Christianity is true, unless the world sees some reality of the oneness 
of true Christians. Listen, this division and fracture is not unique to the church. The world is so fractured right now, right? Political lines have been drawn so firmly. Opinions are being held so tightly. People are so fractured right now. People are so suspicious of one another. There's so much hatred and and division. What a glorious time it is for us to be the church, for us to show that the gospel has the power to break through political division and opinions and to break through all of these social, economic divides that would pull us apart, that the gospel has the power to bring unity. The opportunity is ripe, church, and the devil knows that. And I'll go so far as to say he is successfully distracting and dividing us in this season. He's working. And and maybe I would go so far as to say, even this past week, just looking at some of the things that are happening in social media, I have not had such a strong sense of the demonic as I felt this week. It is it is horrific. Some of the vitriol. With this opportunity to display the power of the gospel to unite that we have in front of us, we are instead throwing stones at each other in the public sphere, slandering our brothers and our sisters. It is awful. It's exactly what the enemy would have us do. And maybe you say, I'm just not as passionate about this unity thing as you are. I'm a truth man, pastor. I'm a truth woman. Listen, I'm a truth person too. Here's the truth. Jesus cares about unity. Here's the truth. Jesus prayed for unity. So, truth man, truth woman, do you love Jesus? Because if you love Jesus, then you'll love what he loves. You'll be passionate about what he's passionate about. And listen closely to his desire for the church. Stop swinging the sword at your own team. Don't join your voice with the accuser of the brothers. Your voice belongs to the Redeemer. And the Redeemer wants his church to be united. So let's fight for it. And let's pray for it. Let's plead for it. Let's do what we need to do to cultivate that. Jesus prayed for it. And then finally, he prayed for it and Jesus paid for it. Acts 20, 28 is one of the scariest verses for any elder. It warns this. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Would you dare sling stones at the church? Would you publicly demean the bride of Christ? Don't you know that he bought her with his precious blood? When you insult your brother and you demean another denomination and you smile at the suffering of another church, don't you realize Jesus, your Savior, was crucified for them? We spent our time in Corinthians today because it's the messiest church imaginable. There was incest, rivalries, tribalism, silliness, and outright embarrassing mess. You could maybe even make an argument that the city of Corinth would be better off without the witness, the sad witness of this church. But beneath the filth and the fog, the Apostle Paul saw the bride of Christ, the temple of the living God, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, holy eternally loved in spite of her flaws. He saw her. Do you see her? And he said, do you not know? You are God's temple. God's spirit dwells in you.
If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. And you are that temple. Listen close. If you are an enemy of unity, you're an enemy of God. If you are a slanderer of the church, then you are a slanderer of the blood-bought bride of Christ. If you're an agent of division and disunity, then you are doing the work of demons. And you will never feel at home in this church because we are for unity. We are for what Jesus is for because we believe in the Holy Catholic Church and in the communion of saints. Even when we can't see it, we believe in it. We believe the church and her unified is the tool that God will use to bring the gospel to the nations. Jesus prayed for that. Jesus paid for that. So we're going to fight for that in this place. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, we, we repent. We repent for the state of the church And we repent for the state of our church. We repent that these seeds of division and disunity, they grow even here. And uh, we, we acknowledge that we need you. We repent for the times we've been inclined to write one another off, to write each other off because of disagreements, um, opinions, preferences. We repent. It doesn't glorify you. It's not what you want for us. We repent for the history of fracture that exists even in our city. God, the the pettiness, it's wrong. It's sinful. And it's a sad chapter in our history and we don't want it to continue. God, we pray that you'd bring us together. And we pray for wisdom. Lord, we're, we're not so naive to think that there isn't, there isn't cause for fracture at times. Lord, we know that there are times when we need to have hard talks and times when, when a sinner needs to be cast out of the camp. Lord, there are some churches, even in this city, that we won't be able to work with, and that's hard. But Lord, I think the corrective that we need is to acknowledge that there are plenty of churches in this city that we could work with, that we should be lifting up in prayer, that we should be fighting to to find unity with. And so, God, we ask for it. And, Lord, I just pray for your church at large right now. Lord, this is a time, just even through the internet and social media, where we see things that maybe we wouldn't have seen before. And, Lord, we're seeing some things that are very frightening and saddening. And, Lord, we just pray. We pray that by the Spirit of God, you would unite the church. We pray that by the Spirit of God, you would heal some of the deep wounds that we have dealt to one another. We pray that by the Spirit of God, we would walk together, that the, world we would, that the world would know we are Christians by our love, that we would take advantage of this moment that we are in to display the glory of the unity of the gospel. And we're mindful today that that unity is an impossibility. Humanly speaking, we can't do it. We can't manufacture it. It has to be from you. So we ask for it. And God, I pray that you would help us to remember this in our prayers, Lord, that we would continually seek this in humility and faith. And uh, Lord, help, help our unbelief. Help my unbelief. I, I confess to you, Lord, that uh, I'm prone to discouragement when I think about this particular issue. Help our unbelief. Um, we trust you. And we believe. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Worship team, would you lead us?